The scripture today comes from Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of this possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in showing steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. I, um, Jeff mentioned that we do scripture circles and hope you can join us tomorrow night. But in those scripture circles, we have a two-hour conversation where all the voices get to be heard and all the perspectives get to be heard on a passage. So I hope you don't have any plans for today because there's no way I can cover Micah in 22 minutes. So if ushers, if you guys can lock the doors, we're going to be here for a couple hours so we can really dive into this text. Uh, just kidding, of course. Um, but I was struggling with how do we talk about Micah in such a short period of time because it is such a rich, rich book. And I'd love to invite us to um, make our way into Micah uh, by engaging with our imagination a bit and by putting ourselves in the perspective of an ancient Israelite. So we're going to go back quite far in the story. And we're going to imagine what it would have been like to leave slavery in Egypt and to wander the wilderness for 40 years with the hope that one day God would bring you into the land that God said God would bring you into. And one day you get to actually go into that land and it becomes yours. And for the first time, you get to establish yourself as your own people group, independent of the empires around you, doing things according to the Torah that God had given you to follow. And then imagine it going badly. Imagine there being leaders who rise up, who kind of don't do things uh, the way that God would like and kind of cycle in and out of following God, not following God, following God, not following God. That's the book of Judges, by the way. And then you say, okay, maybe the solution is we need a king. All the other nations around us have a king. Maybe that'll help us actually do this thing the right way. And so you find a king. And that doesn't go well. King Saul looks like the right king, but doesn't actually turn out to be the right king. So God says, that's all right, I still got you. Let's find David. And then you've got David as your king. And it actually feels like maybe this experiment could work out. Maybe this thing of being a landed nation with our own way of living surrounded by these empires could actually work. And then David dies. And his son Solomon takes over and builds a temple. And you think, okay, now we're like, we're really, we're getting it. <laughs> Feels like we got it. And then King Solomon's son takes over. And after all of the taxes raised by Solomon to build that temple, the advisors tell his son, you know what would really help the people respect you as a leader? Is if you raise those taxes even more. 
Uh, any guesses how that went over? And so that caused such an uprising in the people that the kingdom split. This one people group who were supposed to live as one people group in this land split into two factions. The northern kingdom of Israel, which is ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which was two tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah were the two tribes who said, we will keep following kings in the line of David. And the northern kingdom of Israel were the ten tribes who said, nah, we would like to do things our own way. Thank you very much. How does it feel to be in the southern kingdom of Judah when that northern kingdom splits off? So this is the first invite I will have to participation. Because I think that helps. I know, realize it's a big room. Um, those online, you can shout things at the screen and pretend I can hear you. Um, but put yourself in that position of all of those hopes, all of those years, and now the kingdom has split, and you are the two tribes who decided to stay faithful to Jerusalem and David's line. How do you feel about those 10 tribes that have split off? Anyone want to yell a feeling out? Abandoned. How could you leave us here as just two? How else do you feel? Angry. And maybe you agree. Maybe you're like, I, you know, if I could, I would also like a different leader. But I'm kind of stuck here. This is where my family's land is. Any other feelings rise up? The betrayed. We are family. We are one people group. How on earth could you split us? What trajectory are we on now that you have split? Oh, can you say that louder? Scratching your head, maybe even wondering, where is God in the midst of this? Why didn't God stop this split from happening? And... Oh, sorry, one more over there. One more. Deserted. Deserted. That maybe has a little more energy than abandoned. Deserted. Who has left us down here. That goes on for a couple hundred years where we have two streams going on. This is going to be happening in the book of the Kings, first and second Kings. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're both doing things their own way. And the trajectory of both groups is different, even though they're family, even though they're neighbors. And the northern kingdom of Israel is, is has, ruled by that famous king Eli, uh, Ahab, and during the reign of Ahab is when the time of the prophets begin. Because these kings are struggling in this divided kingdom, God starts sending prophets to say, you've lost your way, you've lost your way, come back. Hey, you've lost your way, come back. Let's try another prophet. You've lost your way, come back. Let's see if we can get this uh, ship aligned. So when we get to the time period of Micah, it has been 200 years since that kingdom split. It's been 200 years of being one people group completely divided. 
and surrounded by the Egyptian Empire and the Assyrian Empire and the growing Babylonian Empire on all sides. And so the prophet Micah comes onto the scene uh, between 738 and 698 BC. He's a contemporary to Isaiah. And we find that out in chapter 1, verse 1 of Micah. So this is a little Bible reading tip, because I know this is a studious bunch. Whenever you are in a prophet, it is helpful to read chapter 1, verse 1 of that prophet, because it usually tells you about who they are and what time period they're in, which gives you an idea what their message might be. So uh, if we could see that one on the screen, chapter 1, verse 1. So the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, for us, that just sounds like a sentence full of mumbo-jumbo, probably. <laughs> like, that's a lot of names. But it tells us a couple of really important things. It tells us who the kings are, which is the thing that tells us he's a contemporary of Isaiah. It tells us what Micah's name is, which his name means who is like God. So that tells us a little something about what his prophecy is going to be about. But it also tells us something we would find surprising because this is what he sees concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we might be wondering what? Another participation moment. If we're still in that position of in the southern kingdom of Judah, Oh, what is the message going to be? If it's to both of us, is there a message coming of being reunited? What else might I wonder? You're kinder than me. I would wonder, are they going to get theirs? Is this going to be a message of Samaria bad, Jerusalem good? Please, God, I've been waiting a couple hundred years for you to uh, put that message out front. A couple verses later, Micah tells us what that message is going to be. If we can see that side. The mountains, this is talking about God, the mountains will melt under him, the valleys will burst open like wax near the fire, like waters poured out on a slope. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Um, Micah, do you not know the history of what happened? Do you not know that it's Israel that has had bad king after bad king after bad king who hasn't followed the Torah? Don't you know that Jerusalem has the temple and we've been trying to do things the right way? How might I feel to hear this if I live in the southern kingdom of Judah? What am I being compared to? What does it feel like to hear from God that the other guy is not the problem? Because this is how we kind of like to think about justice. We like, yes, you should get justice. 
you should have God talk to you about your behavior. This is a message for us. There is no other guy in the book of Micah. Jerusalem and Samaria are being lumped into having these same issues, which is going to be quite surprising to me if I live in the southern kingdom of Judah. I am watching the northern kingdom go down quite gloriously, and and during Micah's ministry, they are going to be conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and it's going to be another 150 years or so before the southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And so I'm going to tend to think, I'm the good guy. And Micah starts off, nope, God's got a word for everybody in this circumstance. And so I want to invite us in our imagination to take that risk of saying, where in my inner world do I think there's an other guy? And where might God have a message for me too? And what is it to hear that and to wonder what all of us are called to in our lives? So when we move forward in Micah, we get to the famous chapter six. But I love looking back a couple verses at the famous chapter six because we tend to put verse eight up on our walls, which is great. But the entire chapter is interesting because it is a conversation between God and Micah and the people. So Micah has just declared in the beginning of chapter 6 some judgment towards the people, which again, I wouldn't really want that to be towards me. I'd be like, yes, please judge Samaria. But to all of us, there's this judgmental language. And so this is the words of the people back to Micah. We've had that record scratch of, wait, God is upset with us? And so this is what the people are saying back to God. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What are the people doing? How would we describe these verses? This is again, let's try for some participation. What are they doing? Negotiating. Negotiating. What kind of negotiation? Can you say more about that? I don't know who, who that, where that was back then. <laughs> Just negotiating. That's great. Yeah, okay, wait. Okay, if you're going to do that, what if, what, what if God, what if, what if I do that? That reminds me of I have a child who's 12. <sighs> 12-year-olds. This sounds like my 12. Wait, wait, wait. But what if, what if, but what if, but what if? I often say, please keep that skill for when you are an adult and need to get a good salary or a raise, but please do not do that with your parent right now. Just say yes, mom. <laughs> All right, negotiating any other language for, for what this might be. Bribery. Yes, hey, let's take that negotiation to the next level. Hear how big this is. Okay, God, all right. If our religiosity hasn't been enough, how about 10,000 rivers of oil? Okay, I've been doing daily quiet times, God, but what if I did like two hours in the Bible every day? Like I've been donating a tithe, but what if I give like an extra $1,000 this month to that group? Maybe a little bribery. Any other ideas of how to frame what is happening here? 
appeasement, which that then ends a little bit of fear in there. God is angry. Maybe God is like those gods that needs to be appeased. I better, I better try to please you if you're angry with me. How can I appease you? Ooh, okay, two things happen simultaneously. So I'm gonna go here first. I can't ever be good enough. We can't ever be good enough. There's almost a hopelessness in this. Like, what will it take to be good enough for you, God? Does it take this much? And up there was... Trying to find the easy way out. Ooh, when have we looked to religiosity to be the easy way out of our lives? I'm sure these minor prophets have nothing to do with modern times. So I'm sure that has never happened to any of us where we think, oh, if I just pray about that hard thing, then it'll go away. So now comes verse 8. And now comes Micah telling them, no, no, no. God has told you, human beings, what is good. What does God, what does the Lord require of you? Do justice. Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. It doesn't take 10,000 rivers of oil. It doesn't take sacrificing your kids. It doesn't take appeasement or negotiation or bribery. You are good enough. You have the capacity to live the way God has called you to live. And here it is laid out for us. Do justice. Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. The word for justice here is one that's used a lot in the prophets. It's the word mishpat. And there's another word in the prophets used a lot for justice, which is sedek or sedekah. And there's a way that Isaiah frames these two words that I like to think about of the difference between a plumb line and a measuring line for a builder. That sedek is the plumb line. There is a arm of justice that is about our alignment with how God calls us to live. But there's also a measuring line. There's an arm of justice that's about measuring what we do and doing it according to that plumb line. There is a justice that involves action. This is that justice. Don't bring 10,000 rivers of oil. Evaluate how well you're doing it living justly and do more justice. Evaluate what you love and wonder if it is chesed, that is the word being used here for that is translated as kindness. Chesed is a really central word um, in the Hebrew scriptures. And I want to read a definition of chesed by a woman named Carolyn Custis James. And this is from her book, Finding God in the Margins, which is about the book of Ruth and has... Um, which has a lot to do with the the word chesed, that book. She says, no word in the English language captures its exact meaning. Consequently, we end up with a smorgasbord of words like kindness, mercy, loyalty, loving kindness, loyal, steadfast, unfailing, or just plain love. Words that certainly touch on what chesed means, but by themselves don't begin to do justice to this powerful, richly laden word. As a result, we easily skim over references to chesed without realizing we have just stumbled over one of the most potent words of the Old Testament. 
With a little help from Hebrew scholars, we can come a little closer to the meaning of chesed. They tell us chesed is a strong Hebrew word that sums up the ideal lifestyle for God's people. It's the way God intended for human beings to live together from the beginning. The love your neighbor as yourself brand of living. An active, selfless, sacrificial, caring for one another that goes against the grain of our fallen natures. Two parties are involved. Someone in desperate need and a second person who possesses the power and resources to make a difference. Chesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by a bone-deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. They have the freedom to act or to walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation. Yet, they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. It's actually the kind of love we find most fully expressed in Jesus. In a nutshell, chesed is the gospel lived out. This is what Micah is telling people to love. Love that. Do justice, love that, walk humbly, and you are turning back to God. And then we might wonder, well, at least I might wonder, how? How on earth do I find my way to that way of living when all the people around me don't live that way? Now we have our context for chapter 7. Who is a God like you? You pardon iniquity. You cross over transgressions. You don't retain your anger forever. You delight in showing chesed. We are able to love chesed because God delights in showing chesed to us. Remember that selfless one in power helping the one in need? God delights in being that way in the world. Micah is referencing here several words that the people would know if they remembered their Torah from Exodus 34, when God passes by Moses and describes God's character to Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in chesed. God is a God of that definition that I just described and delights in being that way towards humans which is why God is so heartbroken when we are not that way to one another. And why sometimes chesed looks like the people losing the land in exile. Because here's the thing, we might read a verse like this and be like, great, Micah has a happy ending. God looks over our sin, God gives us chesed, all is well in my life. Everything in Hebrew scriptures is a communal and generational you. It is not an individual you. And in order to show the communal and generational us, chesed, sometimes the individual me experiences hardship. The northern kingdom at the time of Micah won't turn back to justice and chesed 
which means the chesed of God looks like having them lose their land. Because if people in his name are living unjustly, then that's showing the earth, oh, that's what God is like. Because people at that time period would look at Israel and Judah and say, what is their God like? Their God is like the way they live. And so if God lets those people live unjustly and without chesed, everybody on earth thinks God is like that. And so in order to have a view of God where this verse is true, the path for that group of people is to lose everything for the sake of the communal and generational us that can sit here in this room and say, God is like this. Because if they had kept that land, we wouldn't be here. Chesed is not your life always works out great. Chesed is God is with all of us and working things out in the long haul. And for us, sometimes what that means is the next verse. And I want to just highlight one more word that's here. That word for compassion. In Hebrew, that word is racham. And the root of that word is rahum, which means womb. God's compassion is to give us a new birth and re-womb us. And birth by its nature means you have lost and died to what was before and you are born to something new. And in that new birth, our iniquities can be trampled underfoot. In that new birth, our sins can be cast to the depths of the sea. But that is not easy work and it is not short work. But that is what God's chesed does for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your chesed. Thank you that you have made the hard choices through the generations to sometimes have groups of people experience loss for the sake of the greater good of the communal and generational whole. We pray that you would give us the vision to see past our individual lives, to trust in the goodness of who you are, and to trust that we can live in chesed just as you delight in showing chesed to us. Help us to live the way that you called us to live through your strength. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>